Hey there, welcome back. We're listening to Mary Trump. Picked up for followers on YouTube. Mary Trump In the time we have left, the... I, I, I would marry Trump show. Donald Trump, as he currently exists. This is called Mary Trump Exposes. Hey there. This is called Mary Trump Exposes Secrets of the Trump Household that Created a Monster or Burned the Boats. Part of my deserves network. none of our compassion. Um, and all of our uh, enmity. And we should do everything in our power to make sure that he never, ever ascends to any office in which he has power over the lives of the American people. Yeah, I am with you 100% on that. My sympathy for bullies stops when they get the nuclear codes, and probably a lot before that. <laughs> That's, wow, that was stark, but true. <laughs> I'm Ken Harbaugh. What could possibly go wrong? This is Burn the Boats, a show about making tough calls in tough times. America today faces a critical test. Our democracy is under threat. But good people are rising to the challenge. Now is the time to go all in. Now we burn the boats. My guest today is Mary Trump, a clinical psychologist and host of the wildly popular podcast, The Mary Trump Show. She is also a best-selling author, and her most recent book, The Reckoning, about national trauma and finding ways to heal, is why I wanted to talk to her today. Mary, welcome to Burn the Boats. It is so good to be here. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. It feels like we are stuck in a national nightmare from... From mass shootings to powerful men abusing and then shaming their victims to take your pick, we are a traumatized nation. And the thing about your book, which I find so relevant to the current moment, is how you talk about the legacy of trauma. We always seem to focus on traumatic events. I certainly do. I come at this as a veteran, someone who has lost friends to PTSD. But the power of generational trauma and the legacy of historical traumas can have just as much power over our lives. What happens when we as individuals or as communities fail to reckon with traumatic events in our past? Yeah, well, thank you for that. Um, that, that book is really important to me. Um, when I came up with the idea for it, um, you know, obviously, I wanted to pivot away from only talking about my family, which uh, is no longer that interesting to me, and it's less and less relevant, like in the context of Donald, for example. He's just a symptom at this point, and it's the extent to which he's enabled that is what sh should trouble us and who's enabling him and why that's happening. But um, I, we were in the midst of the second wave of COVID when I thought about when I started thinking about just the, the broad scale national trauma we were facing and the impact of that going forward. And my original thought was, okay, what are we going to do about it? And then of course I realized that I, I can't write individual treatment plans for 330 million people. And that's not as useful as looking at why we were so vulnerable going into COVID. And 
figuring that out required taking many steps back and looking at that issue in a historical context. And, you know, we are a nation that started uh, in the traumas of genocide and enslavement. And we've never grappled with, let alone dealt with, either of those things and the reasons those occurred. Uh, white supremacy um, and the fallout from having been a nation that committed those atrocities. Uh, so here we are, <laughs> deeply divided and traumatized generationally, as you said. Uh, so how do you fix that? This, I think this has been one of my mantras in the last uh, three years. If you are in the process of being actively traumatized, you cannot heal from your past trauma. And that seems to be what, what keeps pinning us in place. And on the one side, it's, it's people who have, at the hands of other people, suffered the intergenerational trauma. And on the other hand, it's the people who perpetuate those traumas by failing to look squarely in the face of how they've benefited from and continue to participate in those systems. So it's complicated in some ways, but in other ways, it's pretty simple. And it's just about being honest with ourselves about you know, what we've created and how we're going to change it. Mary, I love your focus on the, the legacy of trauma and and on what happens when we don't deal with it. My wife has this phrase that if you don't deal with your trauma, it will deal with you. But your observation that you cannot deal with past trauma when you're, or it's very difficult to when you're in the midst of an ongoing trauma is, is so insightful, especially in a political context in which there are so many vested interests in yeah, continuing because the fucking and, Justice and Department hasn't done its job. And there's this passage from your book that, that I'd love to, uh, to get your, your comments on. You say that, I've heard people say this is not who we are, but right now this is precisely who we are, thanks to an outdated and inherently biased political structure Fucked exemplified up. by the undemocratic electoral college, which has repeatedly put the losing Republican candidate in office and the divided Senate in which one half of the membership represents 41 million fewer citizens than the other, we are a nation in which a virulent minority has an outsized voice and the majority, underrepresented and forced into a bystander role, suffers mightily in silence. That silent suffering reminds me so much of, of the, the trauma of people I know who are just getting by. How do we grapple with historical trauma when, when we're in the midst of it? Yeah, that is, that is the essential question, I think. And, you know, I, just to make it clear to people, I come at this uh, as somebody who has CPTSD um, since, for many, many years, since uh, childhood. So um, I understand it quite intimately, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but I also understand... Unfortunately or that, fortunately. Uh, you can be triggered by things that seem wholly unrelated to the original trauma. 
Um, and and that makes us vulnerable in ways that are that are hard to explain, really. Um, and during COVID, <clears throat> as many people with with PTSD will tell you, you know, it it made it, it made it harder to deal with the impact of COVID, but at the same time, knowing that you, having already had your diagnosis and understanding the disorder, at least gave you context. And it made me start thinking about people who didn't know, either didn't know they had PTSD already, or didn't know that COVID was inflicting it upon them, uh, you know, and, and just the uncertainty and not being able to understand what's happening with you uh, made people even more vulnerable and more susceptible. Uh, so knowledge is incredibly important. And um, I think we failed as a society to give people the tools they need uh, to understand, not just what's going on, but how to get help and, and, and how to um, make sense of uh, what's happening in their, their day-to-day lives. But as a society, as a society we've also failed um, on a broader level as citizens to come to that understanding collectively as a nation, which is why I think in part we are at the mercy of that virulent minority. Um, one of the things that I've found, I don't want to say demoralizing, I try not to be demoralized by this, but uh, troubling, shall we say, <laughs> over the last few years, is the extent to which the things that do demoralize some of us and that um, make us angry and that make us frustrated. Um, I've often said it's a, it's a terrible time to be a human being with empathy, you know, that, that, that hurt us. Actually, um, make the other side feel empowered and, and emboldened. They like this stuff, you know, and it energizes them when we are susceptible to basically our humanity, which is a terrible place to be in. Um, so when I said this, and when you read that to me, um, and I haven't read the book in a while, um, it, it kind of sent a chill down my spine because I think it's even more true now than it was when I read it. Um, and that's not, that's not good. You know, we're going in the wrong direction. Uh, so, and then, you know, I think there's a point at which saying there are more of us than there are of them loses its its uh, power because of the things I mentioned, the way the system is rigged in favor of that minority and the extent to which that minority will take... Um, the horrors, really, that are being inflicted on us and and just doubled out on um, inflicting more of them. It's, it's quite, quite something. Uh, so the whole system is in need of overhaul. 
um, and again, unfortunately, those of us who feel and, and sympathize and empathize and care uh, are at a disadvantage. We are. We are. And I worry a lot, and I've asked a number of previous guests this, about our, uh, our belief that organization and, and rallying can overcome voter suppression and a will to impose minoritarian rule. And if bad faith actors don't care about the will of the people, like we see in, in certain state houses that have cemented minoritarian rule, all the organizing in the world, listen, I'm, I'm not going to fall into the pessimism trap, uh, but I think we need to be realistic that organization itself isn't going to overcome the, the type of cynicism that, that you write about, the type of cynicism that revels in, in hurting people, where cruelty is the point, and the angrier you get, the happier they are. Yeah, it, that's such a good point. Um, because pretending that we're playing by the same old rules is going to be fatal to the American experiment. And pretending that the other side is operating in good faith that really does demoralize this guy. You know, when you have President Biden, whom I try not to, I don't go out of my way to criticize the Biden administration because we need them to win again in 2024. And um, right now we are literally looking at a choice between democracy and fascism. So if I disagree with him on policy issues once in a while, I'm gonna keep my mouth shut because that's not the point. He's the only person, um, you know, if he if he is running in the general election against any of these Republicans, President Biden will be the only pro-democracy candidate on the ballot. So, you know, uh, I'm, I'm pulling my punches about other things. But when President Biden calls Mitch McConnell a good friend or says that Kevin McCarthy is an honest man, for whom is that? statement those you know who who is the audience for those statements yeah it's just because it, it's in my view it just completely misreads the reality we're we're dealing with there's the republicans burned the playbook to ashes and they are not operating in good faith in any way shape or form so when Democratic leaders seem to fail to understand that, it makes it a little harder to stay in the fight the way uh, we need to. So um, I'm not really sure what else needs to happen uh, in order for Democrats to get that message and understand that, you know, uh, you can fight really hard without becoming your enemy, you know, becoming like your enemy. Uh, you know, I know this has been argued to death, but I, you know, I never interpreted we go high as we become doormats. I just thought it meant we're going to do everything in our power to win without lying, cheating, and stealing like they do. 
you know, we need to put on our brass knuckles, figuratively speaking, and get in the mud with them, figuratively speaking, we'll do that because we are on the right side of this. And that should empower us. You said in a recent interview that Democrats need to stop pretending that we can be polite and all just get along, and I think that captures it pretty well. I intentionally left your uncle out of the introduction, but I, I think it, it has to be a... You're, you're welcome. You're welcome, and, and I, I don't want to ask this question of you as his niece, but as a clinical psychologist, you're right to point to, to COVID as one of these triggering events that really exposed so many existing vulnerabilities. But for millions of Americans, 2016 and the election of Donald Trump was the indexing event. And that is a that is an ongoing trauma. It's almost like an abuse scenario. It absolutely is like an abuse scenario. And that was my trigger. I mean, I've been in lockdown since November 2016. Uh, because, well, one problem was I lived in a Republican town at the time, so uh, it was amazing. Like, you know, people who voted for Bush I were good friends of mine, and all of a sudden in 2016, like, that couldn't happen anymore. It, it was a truly defining event for our country, and um, I think that the Women's March was a very clear indication of that, but... In a weird way, I think those kinds of protests normalized um, the situation as if, because it suggested that in the context of somebody like him, protests would matter. I mean, we saw this last night. <laughs> like, you can, you can set up a framework that would work for somebody who understands how rules work, and it'll be fine, but you put somebody like Donald uh, in the mix and everything gets upended and undermined. Um, so I honestly think that, that that was the beginning, not the beginning, I, listen, I, I, I've always considered him to be a, a, a symptom of a disease that's been working its way through the body politics for decades. Um, you know, and and it's been a, a slow, steady slide <laughs> to him who came to openly uh, demonstrate what the Republican Party actually has been standing for all along. Like, I don't think he changed the party. He just revealed it. Um, and <clears throat> now we're in a situation where because nobody has figured out a way to push back, um, the disease has metastasized. Uh, it, it is not an accident that 12 million more people voted for him in 2020, which is something, which is a shame that this country will never live down. This country will never live down in uh, electing, putting him in the White House in the first place. And the fact that more people voted for him in 2020, I, I mean, it is such an indictment of the Republican Party. It is such an indictment of our media. And um, it is a huge disservice to those of us who actually not just believe in democracy, but are fighting for it. 
I think the body politic is such a, a helpful characterization as as a metaphor for what we are going through, the metastasy that we're experiencing, and and to draw the the metaphor out, the lack of antibodies. Like we have not figured out how to counter this new strain of anti-democratic virulence. And if there's a question here, I guess it's why are the bad guys doing so well? I mean, I, I, you could say they always have and and, and yeah. quit whining. It's an unfair world. But I feel like the point of, of progress, the point of, of society is to elevate our better angels and discourage bad actors. And just the opposite seems to be happening now. Bad actors are rewarded. Feel free to talk about what happened last night. We'll rush the, the production of this show because I want your commentary on that. But it highlighted the absolute worst in our politics, in our media, in our body politics when you saw that crowd cheer his mockery of yeah, a sexual Yeah, pretty abuse. sick. Y'all are fucking yeah, I, I sick. I didn't watch it. It was bad enough to read about it. Oops, sorry, Katie. So, you know, to follow the threads on Twitter. Those brave souls who were live reading it. Um, but, wow. Yeah, there's just so much there. Um, I love the idea of the fact that we haven't built up antibodies. And I think that's, again, because uh, we have... An, a, a system that in place that has was designed from the very beginning to be anti-democratic. Sorry, sorry about that. He, he broke in. He wants my attention. Um, this is why we do video. This is a this is a great podcast moment. <laughs> you can move the camera over. We'll all stay on. <laughs> Everybody, this is Sebastian. Hello, Sebastian. He, uh, even though he's 27 years old now, definitely needs my attention. Anyway, they are lifelong companions. It's, it's it's not even like I getting my daughter. No, my daughter is thrilled that she'll be inheriting him and his tiny trust fund. <laughs> Um, Where were if, I, if I ignore him, he'll bite me, and that won't be fun for anybody, um, except maybe him. So, the idea of the structural inequality that, that is done on purpose, right? Um, and people just, yeah, especially people who benefit from that system, they're not going to question it, you know, they, it works for them. And um, when there's any suggestion made that it's unfair, they get very defensive. Um, so nothing gets done. And then, and what I find really fascinating, like if you say to somebody, the electoral college, forget about the history of it, just, just in terms of how it operates, right? It is a deeply unfair anti-democratic system that should not exist in a democracy. Every other democracy in the world elects their leaders by popular vote. So somebody, like literally, Joe Biden didn't win the election by 8 million votes. He won it by 77,000. And, you know, 34,000 people go the other way. He still wins the popular vote by 8 million votes, and he's not president. Like, that's not fair. And they're just like, oh, well. What are you going to do? Because it benefits them. So when 
huge media outlets like CNN decide to put their thumbs on the scale in addition to that, we have, uh, we're at, we're at a point of potentially no return. I mean, we're certainly at a breaking point. And to find out not only that, uh, they agreed to do it, but they approached Donald. So he had all of the negotiating power. And based on what I saw, he got everything he wanted. Otherwise, he wouldn't have done it. He got the format. He got the right kind of whatever she was there for. I don't even know. Moderator? Not really sure. Uh, tour guide? Whatever she was. Um, <laughs> and he got an, not just a friendly audience, but an audience of followers who voted for us. I mean, it was just, it literally was a rally uh, on a CNN set. Um, you know, it's it, 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 so we see that the same problems from 2016, where he got over a billion dollars in free advertising, it's already happening. The wheels are already turning. Actually, that started with the indictment when once again we had all the endless footage of planes on tarmacs and planes in the air, and you know, <laughs> his car driving down the highway. It's like, oh my god, I swear. If you had told me it was footage from 2016, I would have believed you. So, we're up against so much, um, and again, the problem is that things are worse now, which is shocking to the system. If you had said to me in November 2020, November 7th, when uh, Joe Biden was declared the winner, and everybody, he's a huge sigh of relief. If you had told me that three years later, things would be worse, I would not have believed it. And they are. They are. You tore into CNN on Twitter. I'm going to read that back to you, uh, and and then, then i got a question. You said in less than an hour... They allowed an authoritarian wannabe to lie constantly while an audience full of his followers applauded. This was not a town hall. It was a rally. Tonight's CNN fiasco was a tragedy for American democracy. I'm with you. But what do you make of those? Because I want to hear this point of view. What do you make of those who say that CNN may have done us a favor? by putting the former president in front of an audience that he could comfortably perform for, so the rest of us could be reminded of who he really is. Well, first of all, they're not going to do that for Joe Biden. I'll say that. Um, But even if they did, that's not the point. This is a, allegedly, a news organization. Right. This is, this is, this is, they are not cruise directors, they are not, uh, party planners. And their job is to make sure that the American people receive factual information. The truth about Donald Trump, we know the truth about Donald Trump. We don't need to give him that kind of platform to show people, um, yeah, I suppose there is this, I don't even know if it's, it's not a serious argument, but okay, so <clears throat> um, if you need to take something away from it, yes, 
we got to see what a vicious bully he is, because that's news. <laughs> we got to see that uh, he is dedicated to uh, to a an extreme right wing agenda. Also, not news because he's going to do whatever the Republican Party tells him to do if he, if he wants their support. Um, you know, he continued to, to defame a woman who prevailed against him in a court of law. I don't care what Marco Rubio says. That is American, the American justice system at its finest, and anybody who attacks the process or who attacks that jury is a part of the problem. Um, yeah, we got to see who his followers are. I don't know. Did you guys watch January 6th? Have you seen his rallies? We know who these people are. I don't think that's, that's a, a reason. I don't think it's an excuse for the egregious decision that CNN made at all. Thanks for watching, everyone. We've got a quick message from our show sponsor. But first, I've got a favor to ask. Growing a show like Burn the Boats depends on you. There was a time when thoughtful interviews with interesting guests could stand on their own, but these days, the algorithm is everything. The recommendations that show up in the feeds of YouTube viewers and podcast listeners depend on the reviews that shows like this get. So please give us a thumbs up, follow this channel, and if you're up for it, please consider clicking on the link to the podcast page and leaving us a five-star review. It makes a huge difference. Thanks. Our next partner Hi is there. Athletic Greens. Hi, I take Mimi. AG1 by Athletic Greens every morning. I gave AG1 a try because I wanted there, a boosted energy, sweetie. immune system Hi, support, Judy. and a supplement that actually tastes great. I take AG1 before starting my day, and it makes me feel ready to take on anything. I'm doing something good for my body, giving it the nutrition it craves. I've tried a ton of different supplements out there, but this is different. The ingredients are super high quality. I noticed right away that it improved my energy levels and made me feel great. AG1 makes it easier to take the highest quality supplements. This one daily serving covers my day's nutritional basis and supports my gut health with 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food source ingredients. It's one scoop of powder mixed with water once a day. AG1 is that easy. If I could recommend one additional thing to do to take care of my health, it's this, AG1 by Athletic Greens. I can't think of another daily routine that pays off as well as AG1, which is why I trust it so much. If you're looking for an easier way to take supplements, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com slash burntheboats. That's athleticgreens.com slash burntheboats. You won't regret it. Cold turkey may be great on sandwiches, but there's a better way to break your bad habits. We're not talking about some weird mind trick from your wacky neighbor or some sketchy message board. And it's, you know, again, it's not... It's not the tens of millions of voters in, uh, in, in, in California, New York, and, and most of the country. It's in a handful of swing states, and too many of them love that message. So seeing him for who he is, it's going to bring out the worst side. And that's something you speak about in the book as well. The president giving America permission to indulge its worst instincts. Yeah, and you you said at the very beginning of the show you mentioned uh, voter suppression. 
And that is why the Electoral College makes this so dangerous. If there were no Electoral College, we wouldn't even have to have this. Well, we would have to have this conversation because the developments are so dangerous. But we wouldn't be worried about the election. How are you doing? That's it. Not even way. I mean, I'm quite nothing this right now. And the Republicans know that they only have to focus on three states. And again, to those who are, uh, to those people who support the electoral college, do you think that's democracy when candidates literally can ignore 47 of the 50 states? It's just absolutely absurd. But that's why they have three tools at their disposal. They have gerrymandering, they have voter subversion, and thanks to Donald, uh, who really can take credit for very little, but he can take credit for this one. We have voter subversion, which is the idea that the election results are illegitimate if your candidate doesn't win. And that's only happening on the right side. Um, or on the right, I should say. So, if you put on top of that, the media's willingness to normalize Donald, like, to, to treat him as if he's a normal candidate, not somebody who's impeached twice, who incited land and incited an insurrection, and who perpetuated the big lie and continues to perpetuate the big lie, and that's leaving aside Georgia. That's leaving aside sexual assault and all of the other many crimes he committed and allegedly committed, um, then when they're also normalizing his followers, that's when we get into real trouble. Because as you say, there's nothing normal about their relationship to their candidate, their support for their candidate, the things about him they support. You know, I've always thought that one of the purposes of liberal, liberal democracy was to kind of wall off that, you know, 25 to 28% of us who, you know, the white supremacists, the Christian nationalists, the misogynists, the anti-Semites. And just, yes, they get their vote, but they don't get an outsized voice in how things are done. And, I, you know, a lot of people forget that between 2017 and 2019, that 28% was represented by 100% of the federal government. The Republicans had the White House, they had Congress, and they had the Supreme Court. Uh, so that percentage grew because it suddenly became okay again to be openly white nationalist, openly um, somebody who prefers AK, uh, sorry, AR-15s to the lives of our children, uh, and on and on and on. And yeah, we saw that exemplified pretty well last night, didn't we? We did. And the power of... I have a parody called to be white supremacy. But it, in, in another <laughs> recent interview, white supremacy is it now the political platform of one of our two major political parties. It is not indicative of where a majority of Americans are, but that doesn't matter when you have a political strategy that is refined enough to focus on those 77,000 votes. You can regain power and remain in power for a long time, even though a majority of Americans don't want that. Listen, Ken, that's exactly the problem with the Supreme Court right now. It doesn't matter that 70 to 80 percent of us want policies uh, that are 
diametrically the opposite of what the Supreme Court is doing. Um, and, you know, when... <laughs> so often you, you hear people saying, well, you know, we're going to be stuck with this court for generations. And I say, why? It's illegitimate. It is, it is flying in the face of what the American people want. And I understand there are times in our history when the Supreme Court does have to go up against the majority because the majority is wrong. And, you know, Brown v. Board would be uh, an example of that. But this, this Supreme Court is so bad. It's so anti-American uh, and is committing... Like, it's just... They literally are doing things that are unconstitutional, which is fascinating. Um, you know, and listen, I know the Supreme Court's been doing that forever, but uh, that doesn't mean they should be allowed to. Uh, so, again, it's just another example of how it's built into the system, and we need to figure out. We need to become much more wily and sophisticated about how we counter this, and I'm very sorry, elected Democrats, but continuing to pretend that, uh, you know, your, um, your colleagues are sincere and want the same things you want ultimately, which is a strong, healthy democracy, is, is kind of going to get us all killed. Yeah. So, what's it going to take? Because I think you and I would agree that we're at an historic point on the level of 1789 or the end of the Civil War. And you, you've made this observation that at almost every step of the way in our history, there were opportunities to make this country more democratic, more open, and more equitable. Instead, the North became more segregated and the South continued to be a closed fascist state, referring to the end of the Civil War and Reconstruction. The political will to do the right thing was lacking, and one could argue that a scaffolding upon which a fully democratic society could be sustained had not yet been built. I feel like we're approaching a another chance to do it right. There is a there is a climax on the horizon when a hundred million plus Americans have had it and are going to demand the kind of structural change that maybe includes something as dramatic as reforming the Supreme Court. I want to talk about Clarence Thomas in a minute. That's that's sort of my my instigator here, but something's got to give, right? Yeah, well, you would think. You would think. Um, but I have to be honest. I thought that during the Bush administration, George W. Bush administration, that... You know, we're not going to just stand here and continue to take this, are we? And we did. Um, so, I, I don't know um, if something's going to give. And I've wondered why that might be the case. And I, I think it's because so much, like, this is a multi-front war. And... Just acknowledging that alone is kind of uh, shocking to the system. Fighting on all of those fronts at once is exhausting. And I think, you know, because we have gun violence, um, I'm not entirely sure how many times we can let our children be massacred by 
murderers with semi-automatic weapons um, before we decide to do something about it. Uh, and because those of us who want to do something about it have no power, and those who do have power have no conscience, um, I worry that a lot of people are just going to be like, you know what, I can't, I can't, I just can't even deal with it anymore. Uh, and, and we could say that about every issue, one of the issues we're talking about, the war on reproductive rights. Um, you know, the fact that women are second-class citizens in more than half of the states right now. Uh, the fact that they're clearly gunning for birth control and privacy and um, Obergefell to, to make marriage equality a thing of the past, and on and on and on. So I think if we look at all of those issues separately, it is overwhelming, and a lot of us are concerned it. I think what we need to do is realize that it's all the same issue. This is simply about the fact that Republicans are taking advantage of weaknesses in the system because they have no morality, they have no ethics, and they, they care for nothing beyond their own personal power and the power of the party, um, they will do everything they can to make sure that the Republicans have a have permanent minority rule. Like I swear I think that the goal for people like Mitch McConnell is to, to turn the United and and a lot of the Supreme Court justices, actually six of the Supreme Court justices, <laughs> or maybe maybe only five, but still, that's enough, uh, to turn America into a theocratic apartheid state. Um, so if we look at it as that, and yes, everything else is like, still going on at once, but it's all in the service of that one thing, then we are fighting against that one thing. And if we prevail, we'll prevail on everything else. I would love your insight as a political psychologist into one of those Supreme Court justices in, in particular. And I've been thinking a lot about the power of humiliation, and in particular public humiliation, to break a person. And I suppose you could go one of two ways. You could either learn from it and grow from it and, and try to become a better person. But I think all too often, especially powerful men react to that in the way that Clarence Thomas seems to be reacting, which is that the world owes me something. And that whatever criticism I draw now is, is merely an extension of that, that unfair, as he called it, digital lynching. And that he deserves any of the, the gifts and favors coming his way because in his mind he feels he was wrong. Can you talk about the power of public humiliation on the psyche of someone like Clarence Thomas? And if you want to extend it to family members, feel free. Have anybody in mind? Um, yeah. Uh, well, first of all, yes, Clarence Thomas was so wrong that he got a lifetime appointment to the highest court in the land. Okay, Clarence. I mean, maybe Bork could make that claim. Although he shouldn't be, she shouldn't have been on the Supreme Court either. But Clarence Thomas has no business making that claim. Um, so I don't know. His whole life seems to be uh, 
the defense mechanism operating behind the defense mechanism of reaction formation, which is that yeah. he's always railing against things that he's guilty of. You know, he's always railing against the for, uh, affirmative action and you know, well, the welfare state. And I can't think of anybody who has benefited from versions of those things more than Clarence Thomas. Uh, the problem, and I think we learn this. Um, much to our horror in 2016 and 2017 and beyond, is that there are people uh, in the highest levels of government who are either impervious to public humiliation, impervious to being shamed, uh, impervious to um, claims of hypocrisy being thrown at them, which makes it, I think, impossible to deal with them appropriately because there are no mechanisms in place to deal with politicians and Supreme Court justices who don't, sorry, it's about to swear, um, who don't care at all about what the wrong kind of people are saying about them. Now, I'm not suggesting, I mean, I, obviously I don't know Clarence Thomas, thankfully, and I don't know him, you know, as a public figure well enough to have any insight into what is going on. But if he's anything like Donald, in which case, yikes, um, but he probably is, um, humil that both of them feel humiliation very keenly. Like for Donald, Humiliation is the thing he most cannot allow himself to feel. He will do anything to avoid feeling humiliated. And if he does, he buries it immediately. He buries it with rage. He buries it with cruelty. Um, and I think that's why we see him, you know, in the wake of the trial in New York, the, li uh, the libel, sorry, the defamation trial, um, in which he was found liable for committing sexual assault and defamation um, in the wake of the indictment in New York for, there are so many things, it's hard to keep track of, um, in the uh, election fraud case in which he paid much um, money to a woman with whom he had an affair while, you know, right after his wife had their first child together. Uh, he, he doesn't fade away. Uh, he comes out swinging, and often to his legal detriment, but to the benefit of his primary campaign. So I do not, I do not think there is anything we can do. Getting back to Clarence Thomas, he's not going to excuse himself ever. He's not going to resign. John Roberts is going to do damn thing about it. So unless and until the Senate Judiciary, currently led by Democrats, by the way, although who would know, and President Biden are willing to take serious steps to reform this out-of-control, illegitimate court, all that's going to happen is we're going to continue to hear revelations about how corrupt Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, John Roberts, and Samuel Alito are.
and probably Brett Kavanaugh too. That's it. In the time we have left, I, I, I want another <laughs> clinical psychologist insight. Growing up, I, I was fortunate enough to come around to the realization that the bullies I encountered were actually pitiful characters. They were invariably from broken homes, and they were bullying as a way of, of compensating for something. You have described your uncle as a scared little five-year-old, and that, that story of the mashed potatoes, maybe I can link to in the show. I'm not going to ask you to, to rehash it again, but, you know, it just captures every little bully I, I ever knew. Is there ever a part of you that feels sorry for your uncle? Uh, no. Um, not at all. Although, what I will say uh, is, because listen, I I know plenty of people who've had much worse childhoods without the benefit of the enormous advantages that he experienced. Um, he turned out to be decent, kind, and Why would you feel fucking sorry for him? So, uh, there's no excuse for what he does and who he chosen to become, um, but, you know, if you read my book, I would hope, the first book, um, which is mostly about my family, uh, I would hope that people come away having a great deal of compassion for the five children, including Donald and my father, who were raised by... Uh, a sociopath, my grandfather, on the one hand, and a deeply personality disordered mother on the other hand. Uh, so you can feel, listen, uh, you know, bullies, serial killers, all, all sorts of people, horrible people, had terrible childhoods, and we should have compassion for that. Uh, the children and what they experience. But that's. That's a very separate issue. Uh, Donald Trump, as he currently exists, deserves none of our compassion. Um, and all of our uh, enmity. And we should do everything in our power to make sure that he never, ever ascends to any office in which he has power over the lives of the American people. Yeah, I am with you 100% on that. My sympathy for bullies stops when they get the nuclear codes. And probably a lot before that. <laughs> That's, wow, that was stark, but true. <laughs> well, it's been great having you, Mary. Thank you so much for, for joining us. I do have one more question, because I, I have to believe in all of the years of having to talk about your family, there's a question that you, you wish you'd be asked, but no one ever does. What, what's that question? You know, I kind of wish people asked more about my dad, uh, because that relationship is sort of paradigmatic of so many other relationships he's had in his life. Um, you know, when, because uh, my father obviously had, had issues, but he's the only person in my family who, who was actually self-made. Um, when he decided to become a professional pilot, 
not only what did he receive no res- support, um, he was vilified by my grandfather, who was a very powerful person in his children's lives. Uh, to the extent that you know, my dad ended up quitting. Like that was the start of his drinking problem. Uh, he was finally doing something he loved and was extraordinarily good at. I mean, he's 25 year old out of training at the TWA facility in Kansas City, and he gets moved to Logan. He gets handed, uh, you know, he's uh, a co-pilot on um, the Logan to LAX run. I mean, that's pretty pretty good for 25 year old kids. Uh, so. He was a consummate pilot, and boatman, and fisherman as well, and yet it was the wrong thing. So he got utterly destroyed by his family, and Donald like stepped right over him to fill the void. Because of course, Freddie Trump Jr. was supposed to be the man who took over the empire, but he was deemed unfit. Because he was doing what was, at the time, probably the most highly respected and coolest professions on the planet. He was a professional pilot for TWA. And that was seen as a threat. I'm projecting a little bit here, but was that why he was cast out? My grandfather uh, couldn't have cared less. That he only cared about real estate. He believed that what he did was the only thing that should be done, and everything else was useless and a waste of time. Donald perceived the threat because he knew how cool it was. And then also, my dad, not that it should matter, but it certainly mattered to Donald. My dad was incredibly handsome. Um, and just, you know, <laughs> this incredibly handsome guy, the second lieutenant in the National Guard, and now he's a pilot for TWA, which was. As you probably know, I mean, not the biggest. I think Pan Am was the biggest, but it was certainly the the like most chic airlines of its time. Um, yeah, so Donald definitely took that in. That's for sure. Yeah, I, I shared this with uh, with you before, but I'll share it with with the audience. My my mom tells me that the first three letters I learned flying back and forth from Europe where my, my dad was stationed to the to the States for, for my childhood were T W and A because we always took that transatlantic flight. So yeah, I have I just love that. And you probably got the wings and you probably got the kit bag. This is back, back when you could ride up front if you were a kid and cute enough. Right. I'm not sure I was, but they, they let me <laughs> into the cockpit. And you could like practically sit on the pilot's lap. Our our kids will never understand those days. Never. But just enormous respect for someone like your dad who could carve his own path and do it in such a badass way. That's tough on so many levels. And uh, I yeah. hope more people ask you about him. Oh, thanks, Ken. I really appreciate it. It's been great having you, Mary. Mm-hmm. It's been great to be here. Thank you. Hey, Midas Mighty. Love this report? You continue the conversation by following us on Instagram, at Midas Touch. Keep up with the most important news of the day. What are you waiting for? Follow us now. Yeah, so his dad, her dad, developed a drinking problem because he uh, 
She was vilified, like she said. Because he wasn't taking over the... He had no interest in taking over the real estate empire. So, um... Then they just, like, uh... Mercilessly... Attacked him. She'd have broken up all ties. Mary Trump on the Burn the Boat show. Mary Trump on Burn the Boat. Exclamation point. Anyway, so yeah, I have two podcasts going on, just in case this one craps out. But thank you for 163. Okay, on this one, on this podcast, you have good mm. taste. <laughs> anyway, got a couple minutes left. Let's see what's going on, uh, what's that, by the way, that was published, yeah, three days ago. I didn't mention that. It's nice touch. Spilling the beans, Manhattan DA makes big move to force Trump ally to turn. 22 minutes ago. Hey everyone, Harry here to talk about Talking feds. how much Harry pressure Redman. can one 75-year-old accountant take. <laughs> the accountant in question, of course, Alan Weisselberg. Remember... Okay, so Lev, let's remember who he is. He is the most loyal of all in Camp uh, Trump. He goes back to the old man, to Trump's father, and has been the CFO forever, predates Trump himself. And he has already done a stint in Rikers Island for Trump because he wouldn't turn state's evidence. He wouldn't give evidence against Trump. He was he agreed, as he has to under the law, to testify truthfully in the trial against the Trump organization for tax fraud and other monkey business, and it was against him, and he went to Rikers Island for many months. As an aside, Rikers Island is a hellhole. I've toured it, and you know, prisons and jails are no fun. But a guy like Alan Weisselberg might say if he's convicted in the federal system and lives in a normal state, could go to a relatively quiet and secure um, prison. Instead, he went to Rikers Island, which really is something out of Dante. And he did his time, has come out. And now they are turning the screws on him again in two different ways. So Bragg's office, which has, you know, indicted uh, Trump, but obviously wants to bulk up its case, is alleging that uh, he, well, is suggesting that they could indict him for 
perjury or at least a false statement more about that later and insurance fraud now the insurance fraud um, both of these come from stuff he's already done and the insurance fraud would be lying to um, an insurance company about the value of the Trump organization's real estate holdings and saying no. that they've been assessed how is it, by the way, that uh, Trump yet again escapes fucking going to prison? How come he doesn't have to go to Rikers? It's his fucking organization.